Thank you. Good morning. Again. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. We're looking at verses 1 through 22. I hope you're all doing well on this last Sunday of September. It's basically 2021 at this point. But. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 to 22. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from a herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel should be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place, until he comes out and has made an atonement for himself, and for his house, and for all the assembly of the Lord." Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with its finger seven times, 
and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we again come to you in a spirit of thanksgiving. We praise your holy name. May we marvel at your majesty over your creation. We praise you for the gift of everlasting life, which is available to all through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us our sins, O Lord, as we are fallen people in a fallen world. We struggle with areas of selfishness, our failings, our instances of pride, the times when we choose sin over you. Lord, may we come to you on our own in confession of our sins. May you strengthen us to repent and to more and more live for you. May we be daily sanctified for your word and by the power of your spirit. May we be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, I pray for each of us that we trust in Jesus, that we know him personally, that we know the salvation that he promises, that we believe in the life that he invites us into, that we have placed our hope for eternity into his work, and that we might look to him as the greater priest who offered the final sacrifice, as the greater son who makes us worthy to be your children, and as the greater sacrifice who gives his life for us so we can be forgiven. May we all trust in that, Lord. For any of us who are hanging on to any vestiges of self-justification or trusting in our own goodness as what will make us right with you, Lord, may we turn away from that and trust in Jesus. It is entirely by his work of a perfect life and his abounding grace that sinful people can be forgiven. We praise you as the everlasting and eternal God. Bless our time as we study in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Leviticus 16 this morning, kind of by popular demand. Last week I had mentioned I was considering preaching this passage, and a few people seemed eager for that, and so here we are. Uh, Yom Kippur is, uh, technically starts this evening into tomorrow. It's the Jewish Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur in Hebrew means Day of Atonement. And in the Old Testament, that was the most sacred and holy day in their calendar. I mentioned this last week, but there are three Jewish holy days in the fall. Rosh Hashanah, which is the new year, that was last week. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which again starts at sunset today and ends at sunset tomorrow. And then you have the Feast of Booths, which is next weekend. Uh, when we get back into John chapter 7, Lord willing, next Sunday... The passage will be in the middle of the Feast of Booths. If you recall from last week, that's when Jesus has come back to Jerusalem. But today our focus is on Yom Kippur, and our passage outlines the procedures for the annual observance of Yom Kippur. And as the name suggests, the Day of Atonement was a day which revolves around atonement and 
repentance and holiness. For the ritual aspect, the high priest would take two goats. One he would sacrifice for the sins of Israel. The second would be released into the wilderness. But there's much more that this passage has to say in Leviticus 16. Now, as Christians, we don't have a mandate to observe Yom Kippur. But that doesn't mean it's any less worth us studying in Scripture. Because everything in this passage points us to Christ and the gospel. As another note, the word atonement. Atonement refers to God's work of dealing with our sin. Because of sin, the relationship between man and God has been broken. But with the Day of Atonement, it was an annual picture of forgiveness that people could have. Now, before we fully jump into this passage, a couple of other brief things to note. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. In Leviticus, we see many of the laws of God given to Israel, which regulated Israelite conduct for sacrifices, for worship, for ritual cleanliness, for the priestly system, for the observance of the holy days, among other things. And with that, we come to our passage. And the main idea of this passage in Leviticus 16 is that the forgiveness of our sins has a cost we cannot pay. Unfortunately, we don't have time to cover everything in this section this morning. So really what I want to do is focus on three things. A priest and two goats. Beginning with the priest. And beginning back in the passage, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. To give a little bit of background, this verse is referring to events in Leviticus chapter 10. In Leviticus, Aaron, the brother of Moses, is the high priest. And in chapter 10, after the commands have been given for the priests about various offerings and Practices, Aaron's two sons go and defiantly do unauthorized rituals in the sanctuary. And so God strikes them dead in Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. And that might sound very harsh. That might sound almost cartoonish or like some sort of old fairy tale story that a couple of Old Testament priests got it wrong. And so God struck them dead. I think our initial reaction is to think that maybe that's too heavy-handed, that the punishment doesn't fit the crime, that that's too severe. But what that does is shows us the reverence that God demands for his own holiness. It's a point that I've made before. But we do not approach a holy God in any way we want. We don't approach God on our terms. I think our society likes to pay little attention to the holiness of God. Some people just want to emphasize the love of God. God is love, and he is infinite in his love. He is perfect in his love, and he loves his people more than we could imagine or comprehend or appreciate. But God is also equally and awesomely holy. And approaching a holy God demands reverence. And so a transgression that profanes the holiness of a righteous God is something that does warrant death. 
It's God's grace that he does not strike everyone dead whenever they sin and sin against his holiness. He would be within his righteous justice to do so. But the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But there is wrath towards sin. And Aaron's sons bore that wrath for their action. When we judge God's judgment of sin, that shows a low view of God's holiness. We can never be too holy in our lives. And Jesus shows we can never be holy enough. There is total holiness needed to approach God. Do we look at God as being holy, morally righteous, set apart, mighty and majestic, worthy of praise and glory? A God who is so great that you could never truly be worthy to enter his presence on your own? Because that's who God is. There's nothing casual about God. There's nothing informal about approaching God. That no one has the right to profanely approach God. And the two sons of Aaron, God knew their hearts and saw their actions, and he judged them. And so it's in that context that the Lord has spoken to Moses, who then tells the message to his brother Aaron, who's the priest. Verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. So we hear, see here a stern warning where the text says not to come at any time. It's obviously not saying that the high priest couldn't go ever, but it's saying that he can't go into the temple, into the sanctuary, anytime he feels like it. Now, the text mentions something called The holy place. What's that? It's referring to the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle. Just a moment ago I said temple. I meant to say tabernacle. As we've talked about numerous times during the Israelites' desert wanderings, they did not have a temple to worship in. They were on the move. And so God had instructed the tabernacle, which allowed them to bring the place of worship with them during their wanderings. The tabernacle was a tent and was portable. Now, the tabernacle was a holy place. And as we've said, the holiness of God demands reverence. Inside the tabernacle was an inner sanctuary, which was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies, or the sanctum sanctorum. They all refer to the same thing. And not just anyone could go into the most holy place. It was reserved for the high priest... And even he could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the high priest was able to be in the presence of the Lord that one day as a representative on behalf of all of Israel. Verse 3 starts to get at the procedures by which the high priest could enter the most holy place. But in this way, Aaron should come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering And a ram for a burnt offering. The text says that before entering, he had to offer a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering to atone for his sins 
and for those of his family. Because the high priest was also sinful. Verse 4 continues. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. As part of the priest's preparation for entering the most holy place, the presence of God was that he had to put on special linen garments. Everything about entering into God's presence that we see in this passage was meant to be holy, set apart, different from everyday life, morally pure and clean. He had to wash before entering the most holy place. And on the Day of Atonement, one of the last things that the priest would do before entering the most holy place was that he would take two goats. Moving forward in our passage to verse 7, Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the two goats are absolutely essential to the Day of Atonement. Verse 8 says that the high priest would cast lots over the two goats. Casting lots is almost kind of like a roll of the dice, flipping a coin, something that you're leaving it up to God's providential decision. And in that situation, when the high priest cast lots for one of the goats, it would come out a certain way that one of the goats would be sacrificed. And if they came out a different way, the other goat would be sacrificed, depending on how the lots were cast. So one of the goats would certainly be sacrificed, and the other would not. Now, I preach from the ESV. The ESV says, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot, as the ESV says, for Azazel. Many translations will use the word scapegoat there. We don't know exactly what Azazel means. It's a Hebrew word. It could mean goat who's released or scapegoat. It could mean that. It could also be referring to the wilderness that the surviving goat was released into. We don't actually know 100% for sure. I personally prefer the idea scapegoat. But regardless, the point is the same either way that the priest would take two goats One was sacrificed, the other was not. For the other goat, as verse 10 tells us, he was presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. The next couple of verses continue the process by which the high priest would prepare to enter the most holy place, the sacrifices he would make, just so that he could enter the holy place. He would take some of the blood of the bull that he had sacrificed for his own sins. And verse 14 tells us he would sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Again, very intricate instructions. I would not have made a good high priest. As Carrie will tell you. If I'm trying to build something right around step two, I'm totally off in my own world. But the point of it wasn't just to do whatever you felt like or just to 
think of what you thought would work. It was to specifically, and to the letter, follow God's law and instructions. And so the passage says that he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Inside the most holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant. This contained the tablets of the Ten Commandments originally. It contained manna, Aaron's shepherd's staff. Respectively, these were all symbols of God's covenant with his people, his provision for his people, and his choosing of his people. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was a golden lid. There was detailed artistry and forging the angels and the gold and this covering of the Ark of the Covenant. So you have a holy place. And in part of the detailed, intricate design of the ark is that it would look like angels were on top of it. And so you have a holy place with angels who are giving praise to God. It is a symbol of heaven. It is a symbol for the heavenly throne room of God. And this completed finally all of the preparations for the high priest to enter the most holy place. And like we said in the beginning, everything in this passage points to Christ. You have the high priest who had to cleanse himself before entering the temple. But in the Gospels, we see that Jesus is the true high priest. And Jesus doesn't have to purify himself or atone for his own sin to enter the presence of the Lord because he is a perfect high priest. As Hebrews 7.26 tells us, it was indeed fitting that he should have such a high priest. I'm sorry. It is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Keep in mind again, in detail, the purification rituals that we've discussed. The holiness that was required to enter the presence of the Lord. And look at the language that's used here to describe Jesus. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. While the Day of Atonement was just one day out of the year, there were animal sacrifices. But because Jesus is holy and righteous, he doesn't need to purify himself to enter the presence of God because he himself is God on earth. Hebrews 7.27 offers another comment on the priestly system. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then those for the other people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, the perfect high priest, and it is only because of Christ's perfection that we are enabled to enter into the presence of the Lord. He is the one who is our representative before God. The forgiveness of our sins has a cost we cannot pay. So that's the first person to look at in our passage, the priest. Next we look at the two goats. The first goat, the one that was sacrificed. So at this point in the passage, the priest has thus far made sacrifices for himself to be able to enter the most holy place. Our passage continues, verse 15. Then he shall take the goat of the sin offering that is for the people 
and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So the blood is sprinkled in the most holy place. And this is what the sacrifice is meant to do to atone for sins, to cover up our sins. The sacrifice of the goat was meant to symbolically bear the sins of the people. Verse 16. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. All of their transgressions and sins. All of their defiance to God. As verse 16 continues, he would finish cleansing the tent himself. And he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. In verses 18 and 19, the high priest would make atonement at the altar of the Lord by sprinkling blood on the altar. Again, because of the sacrifice of the goat, it was a powerfully symbolic way for atonement for a restored relationship with God, for the sins being covered by the blood of the goat. But today we have the gospel. We have Jesus. Before there was Christ, through the incarnation, this would have been an incredibly powerful symbol for the sins of the people being atoned for. That we see the sacrifices that ultimately point forward to the even greater sacrifice today. That Jesus is the high priest, but he is also the sacrifice. Because while a goat could not atone for our sins, while a a goat's blood could not cover up our sins, Christ could. He was a worthy sacrifice. I know to the world today, the idea, to much of the world, to our society, the idea of an animal sacrifice to atone for sins, it seems archaic. It seems backwards. But in the Old Testament, it was merely a shadow. Because our forgiveness could never have been truly paid for by the life of an animal. It's a point that's worth repeating. But it's not that the sacrifice of the goat was actually the reason God forgave the Israelites. It was the heart that came to God in faith and recognized the cost of sin, which was a matter. Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They were never intended to take away sins. It is only the blood of Christ which can do that. And atones for our sins. He covers up our sins. His blood washes away our sins. The first goat on the day of atonement was sacrificed for sins. But the second goat was not slaughtered. And that takes our attention to verse 20. And our third point. The scapegoat. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness 
The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. Again, the first goat was a symbol of the need for sacrifice to atone for sin. But our sin is also associated with the second goat. Both hands placed on the goat, symbolically transferring sin to the goat. The first goat died, and his blood was a symbol of our sins being covered. The second goat shows the result of atonement. It was a symbol of sin being taken away, set free into the wilderness. Like Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Sin is totally removed when you trust in God. Again, this was the most holy day in the Jewish calendar. What a reminder as a go to set free. That we are set free from sin because of God's grace. Again, we don't need to sacrifice anymore because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. But what a picture that is of God's grace and forgiveness. If you're someone who struggles to believe that God could forgive you, if you've done something really bad in your past, or if you have an area you're struggling with today and you feel like God couldn't love you, couldn't forgive you, if there's ever anything lingering, any lingering worry about that, our sins are taken away because of Christ. They are totally removed, like the second goat, sin away, never to be heard from again. We don't deserve it, but it's how God atones for our sins. He forgives us of our sins. He removes our sins, and our relationship with him can therefore be restored. Because of the work of Christ, because of the grace that God offers to all who accept him, and because of that, you can know there's forgiveness. But not only are our sins forgiven, they are totally removed. They are taken away. Not because we're so good, but because Christ is so good. Both in the Old Testament and today, what mattered was faith. Trusting in the Lord, recognizing that we don't live up to our own standards. That we don't live up. That we aren't holy. That we aren't worthy. But when we trust in Christ, he makes us worthy. He makes us holy. Maybe that's not a struggle for you. Maybe you know that you're forgiven. But how are we at being forgivers? Because that can also be a challenge. In this passage in Leviticus 16, we see the cost of forgiveness. And the forgiveness of our sins ultimately comes at a cost that we cannot pay. Forgiveness always comes at a cost. For sinful humanity, the cost was so great that the only way the cost could be paid was for Jesus to die for our sins so that they could be atoned for. The death we deserved, his blood shed so that our hearts could be cleansed. There's a quote that I love from Tim Keller where he says, God's grace and forgiveness, while free for the recipient, are always costly for the giver. From the earliest parts of the Bible, it was understood that God could not forgive without sacrifice. No one who is seriously wronged can just forgive the, the perpetrator. 
But when you forgive, that means you absorb the loss and the debt. You bear it yourself. All forgiveness, then, is costly. Again, I think that's profound. That when you forgive someone, you pay the price. And the greater the sin, the greater the cost. If someone does something minor, you might not even give that a second thought. But when someone has sinned against you and wronged you in a major way, it's harder to forgive. Again, if I'm five minutes late for something, that's a momentary inconvenience that's pretty easy to forgive. If I break something of yours, there's a cost. Imagine that I was going to your home and actually pulled up too far and hit your house. There's a cost. You could say, you have to pay for this, in which case I would bear the cost. You could say, I'll take care of this, in which case you're bearing the cost. And that's just anything that, think about something that's tangibly broken. We could come to some sort of agreement where I pay part and you pay part. But it comes at a cost. If you say it's just no big deal, don't worry about it, you're bearing that cost. So it always costs something to forgive. And that when we forgive someone else, we are absorbing that cost ourselves. However you've been wronged, whatever rights you may have had, whatever retribution you might have been able to get, no matter how justified that can seem, that you forfeit any right to being angry or bitter when you forgive. You forgive any debt of guilt that a person should have. And that's hard to do. Again, especially for the major things. It's easy to forgive small stuff. But to truly forgive when we've been wronged in great ways. It's hard to do. Again, because when we forgive, we're bearing a cost. But then we have Jesus paying the price for our sins by sacrificing his own life. That's how much our sin costs. Again, the greater the wrong, the greater the forgiveness, the greater the cost. Our sin was so great that we couldn't just earn it back by trying to be better. That to truly forgive us, Jesus came into the world and lived a perfect life and paid that price for our forgiveness at the cost of his own righteous life. And that's what we see in the gospel. That our sin was so great that Jesus was the only one who could pay it. Our sin was so great that God on earth dying for our sin was the only way it could be afforded. That the forgiveness of our sin was a cost we could not pay. It's fascinating as I think about the ceremonialism in the Old Testament law. Everything was done for a reason. All of the exact and meticulous detail under which the tabernacle was built, all of the specific instructions given to the priests, the very specific laws regarding sacrifice, the specific ways in which to approach the Lord, the cleansing that needed to be done, the atonement for sin. It's teaching us about the holiness of God, a holiness we don't have, that we can't live up to, 
but we are welcomed in to the presence of the Lord because of the holiness of Christ. For God to forgive us, the Lord had to pay the price. And he does that for anyone who comes to him in faith. And let this passage be a reminder that there is a cost for sin. And that the great Savior, who was the great high priest, who allows us to enter heaven, who is the ultimate and perfect and final sacrifice, and who gave his life so that we can be forgiven to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Son, for the promise of eternal life that we have, Lord, that we are great sinners, but he is a greater Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.